Hey everyone, it's Ethan with a few words from our sponsors. We're very excited to have Lego, yes, the Lego, sponsoring our show today. We love building Legos and they sent us their new Lego Technics series to play around with. It's real life advanced building, some with working gears and real electric motors. Technic is made for the engineers and STEAM students. From sports cars to hydraulic movers, if you build for power and speed, then visit lego.com slash technic to find your next Technic build. That's lego.com slash technic, T-E-C-H-N-I-C. I think I'm spelling right. Lego, Technic, build for real. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. I am Trace. In this episode, we're going to talk about science in space. We've got a special guest here. We're going to learn all sorts of interesting things about uh, rodents in space, about why we need microgravity and what its benefit is. We're also going to talk about a space-based U.S. National Laboratory that maybe you didn't even know was there. It's going to be really cool. So let's kick into it. So here today I have Dr. Mike Roberts of CASIS. He's the Deputy Chief Scientist of the Center for Advancement of Science in Space. Is that correct? That's close enough. Okay, good. Um, so tell us a little bit about what CASIS is. So CASIS is a, a not-for-profit organization that works in partnership with NASA to manage the International Space Station National Lab. So our job uh, in managing the International Space Station National Lab is providing pathways for science and technology development in space. Cool. So when it comes to calling it a national lab, what, is that, what does that mean? What does national lab even mean? So we have the great honor and distinction of being the only national lab that operates off-planet. We operate in low Earth orbit. Uh, we are the only national lab that is operating at 17,500 miles per hour Whoa. up there. Yeah. So we feel like we're unique. <laughs> it seems like. Uh, and as a national lab, our mission is to serve the nation, uh, to provide opportunities and, and unique access to environments that aren't possible anywhere else. And that's pretty easy to do in the space environment. We have access to microgravity 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We've got access to points outside the station where folks who are interested in looking at the way things behave and the harshness of space can put them out there and leave them for as long as they need to. And we also have, as an advantage of the International Space Station operating in that low Earth orbit, it's a satellite, right? So it has the, the capability of looking back at Earth and taking images of anywhere that it travels. And we're fortunate in that with the orbital inclination at which the International Space Station travels, we cover over 90% 90, 90 of the populated areas of Earth. So what have we learned from the International Space Station National Lab that um, you know, we couldn't have learned here, like, give me an example of something we've learned maybe recently that we couldn't have learned here on the ground. Yeah. Well, let me go back a little bit historically. Sure. One of the most fascinating aspects of the International Space Station, even that predates the International Space Station National Lab, is that humans have been living and operating in the space environment for over 18 years now. So we've had a constant presence in space for nearly 20 years. Um, and, and that's important because that enables us to understand what it's like to live off planet, which is uh, one possibility in our future we don't want to think about, but always having a backup plan is, is a good idea going there. And what we've learned in addressing those issues of how to maintain humans in that environment have led to discoveries in the medical realm, to discoveries in the, the use of new materials, operation of uh, life support systems that are absolutely required in the space environment, but actually have advantages down here on Earth. NASA continues to fund research and exploration, and, and most of that research is focused on learning about our solar system and beyond. 
and learning about how we can maintain a human presence not only close to Earth, but actually around the moon, on the surface of the moon, Mars one day, and maybe even beyond. The ISS National Lab is focused on research and technology development that translates to direct benefit here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So we use the same research environment, but we approach it with different questions in mind. So from our perspective at the International Space Station National Lab, we've seen a lot of interest from pharmaceutical companies. Hmm. Uh, one of the neat things you, you may have seen in astronaut videos is their ability to actually fly mm -hmm. in that environment. And that translates into them not having mechanical loading on their bones and muscles. So the astronauts have a, a prescribed exercise regime they go through every day. They have drugs that they take in order to maintain uh, bone density and maintain muscle strength. But we can send mice or other test organisms up there that don't have the benefit of those drugs and those exercise devices. And we can then track the loss of bone mineral density over time. Uh, that's important because here on Earth, as we age, our, our bones and muscles weaken. Drug companies have developed some pretty effective uh, treatments for osteoporosis and other things that affect us as we get older. But they're always looking for better drugs that have mm -hmm. fewer side effects. We've seen a lot of interest in material science as well. I mentioned that there are platforms outside in the environment of space that enable folks to test new materials that are going to be used in spacecraft and small satellites. The International Space Station itself is, in addition to being a remote sensing platform for looking at Earth, it also has a, a very large sensor array called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, which is looking back into deep space to understand wow. the, the origin of, of dark matter and dark energy. So it's essentially a, a multifunctional platform out there that you know you bring your imagination to the to the forefront and decide how you want to play there. Uh, and with the creation of the National Lab, we now have the opportunity to work with federal agencies in addition to NASA. So we have research projects currently operating on orbit that were sponsored by the National Science Foundation, asking very fundamental basic questions about fluid flow and physics and combustion in that environment. We have experiments that are sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, who are looking at building small miniaturized organ systems on, on disposable chips. Whoa. And they can use those chips to address questions about how effective a drug is going to work on you individually. So it feeds into the personalized medicine research that's going on now. And we have research that's sponsored by different elements of the Department of Defense. They're using the space environment to look at wound healing hmm. and ways to uh, accelerate the pace of wound healing for soldiers in the field and for anyone who, who uh, endures a broken bone or a, a skin skin rupture here on Earth. Wow. So you guys aren't busy at all is what you're saying, it sounds like. Sometimes we're busier <laughs> than others, but no, it's good. There's a, there's a lot going on. During a, a typical, we talk about increments in the International Space Station. So crew members, is a, uh, I hope everybody's aware, we currently have six crew members up on orbit. Sometimes we have as many as seven. Uh, who are working up in that environment. And they work in rotations of about six months at a time. And each six-month increment has on the average of 350 experiments that crew members are operating. So they're very busy uh, with daily routines, not only maintaining the International Space Station, but actually conducting science and doing technology development. And we're learning a lot about living in space, but the real learning that we're getting there is how space affects our bodies mm -hmm. and how important the environment is in maintaining our health and other things. So mm -hmm. 
although the International Space Station wasn't built, I think, with that in mind, it's become a very important aspect of what it's now capable of doing and what we're doing on National Lab. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think, too, to touch back on one more thing um, about having animals up there. I guess, what's the, the thought process of sending rodents and, and other kind of animals into space, other than potentially, like, bone loss, as you mentioned? Right, right. So the the most common animal up there in, in terms of, of um, infrastructure that we use to support are the humans, of course. Sure. And, the humans, uh, one of the, the paybacks for being able to be an astronaut or a cosmonaut is that you sign up to be a test subject. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the research focus that's focused on understanding effects on the human body in that environment. And those, in addition to the microgravity effects and the elevated radiation, you also learn a lot about crew interactions and social interactions because you're working with, uh, in a confined space environment, which is very unnatural. Um, it's a very large space station, but you're still going to see the same people day after day. We use different animal models to address different questions in that environment. In some cases, we use animal models because they're smaller and they reproduce more quickly. Mm -hmm. So you can look at multi-generations of exposure to that space environment, and we haven't done any experiments with humans reproducing in space. so. We get valuable information from that. The reason we use mice and rats in that environment is they're mammals like us. They reproduce quickly. They have a they share a lot of the same genetic content that we do. They're obviously very different, and we haven't shared a common ancestor in a few hundred million years. The mice themselves are, are uh, actually very good study cases because they adapt very quickly to mm -hmm. the microgravity environment. Um, they don't have spacesuits. Uh, and they live in a very different environment and in the space than they do here on Earth, but they learn how to, to navigate around their cage by using their front paws instead of their, instead of just free floating hmm. around the environment. So one of the questions we get all the time is, are the mice simply free floating around and bumping into each other? And what they typically do is they crawl around the cage much like the astronauts do when they're on an EVA outside the space station. They use handholds hmm. to move themselves around. The mice do the same thing inside the cages. Um, the mice don't typically launch with a, a running wheel. Uh, for those of you who have hamsters or mice at home, you typically have a running wheel so they can get their exercise. In space, sometimes the mice use their cage as a running wheel. So they will just run circles around the cage to have a good time and, and blow off some steam mm -hmm. uh, while they're up there. We use other animals as well. Fruit flies are very small, breed very fast. You can put them in little glass vials with cotton in the end of them and they do just fine uh, for long periods of time. So, and it turns out that the heart muscle inside uh, of uh, fruit flies is a very good model system for human heart. One of the things we know that uh, is an effect of microgravity exposure is deconditioning of the heart. Your muscle actually starts to weaken. Your heart muscle will hmm. weaken over time because it doesn't have to push as hard against gravity to distribute the blood. And the same thing will happen with uh, the cardiac muscle inside of fruit flies. We've hmm. also flown fish. How does uh, that work? <laughs> uh, they go up in their own little fish tanks. Um, so the, the Japanese module, uh, Kibo, had a, an aquatic facility on board, uh, which provided light and oxygen to the system for the fish to go. They flew a couple of different species of fish. Most of that work focused again on bone growth, looking mm -hmm. at, they used a type of fish which is almost transparent. So just by having the fish living inside the tank and then taking images of them through the side of the tank, 
you can see how the young fish grow into old fish and how the absence of gravity in that environment affected their bone, their bone mineral density growth. We've also flown worms, uh, different kinds of worms uh, ranging from round ones to flat ones. The flat ones are especially interesting because some of them have the ability to regenerate. Uh, for those of you who are in high school or even in, uh, younger, you may have done an experiment where you took a flatworm and cut it in half with a razor blade and observed it over time for its ability to regenerate. It can grow a new head or grow a new tail. And salamanders and, and some lizards have that ability. Uh, these flatworms have that ability. Humans don't. If we lose a finger or a hand or a leg, we haven't figured out how to grow it back yet. So we're using studies of those model organisms to understand tissue repair. Yeah. Um, even for things that are far less severe, like a simple cut, they're affected by that microgravity environment. It tends to slow down the body's healing process. So scientists and, and uh, physicians are interested in understanding how that process occurs at the molecular level and ways that we can perhaps accelerate the pace of healing or regenerating those tissues uh, here hmm. on Earth by learning what they can in the space environment. That's super neat. What technologies have we actually seen come out of these experiments that we have on the International Space Station? So uh, you mentioned things like microgravity and drugs, but I'm thinking more like, I know we, we made a video a while back about like cordless batteries and things like that. So things, something that maybe one of our viewers might get their hands on. Would, is there anything that you can think of? Yeah, there's some devices that are coming out. We There's been a lot of interest I mentioned in looking at the space environment as a harsh environment in which to live and work. And, one of the things you, you have to pay heed to when you're working in that environment is the elevated radiation in that mm. environment. And that has an influence upon electronics, especially electronics that are used in computing systems. So actually one of the, the developers of uh, imaging capabilities on board the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, one of the drivers in designing that particular instrument were the ability to collect large amounts of data and condense it down so that it could be translated back to Earth because uh, you could fill up the data channels very quickly with that. So a company was engaged to, to build hardened computer systems that would operate in, in that space environment. And the approach they took was to actually look at building systems that were easy, cheap, and easily replaceable. And some of that technology is now translated back to Earth in that we sometimes no longer have to build these hardened computer systems that are going to operate in the space environment or at the, the bottoms of the ocean, at the bottom of the ocean. You have the ability to utilize these systems which have parallel processing capability and other things. So it's driven the way that these hardened systems are designed and, and kind of where they've used. We've seen similar approaches in, in microfluidic devices. So. Uh, we tend to throw out terms all the time about microfluidics and nanofluidics, and no one really knows what it means. Yeah, but I was going to ask. <laughs> at the heart, it comes down to just really tiny channels uh, in order to, to deliver drugs. So one of the things you have to worry about in a, in a microgravity environment are keeping gases and liquids separated. Uh, here on Earth with gravity, the heavier stuff, the liquids are going to settle down to the bottom, and the gases are going to float up to the top, like when you open a... a, a bottled water with gas in it, you're going to see the, the gas kind of come out the top. That doesn't happen in the microgravity environment. And one way you can get around that is by designing very thin capillaries, very thin channels for the fluids to go through. Or you can use centrifugation, you can spin the gas out of liquids that way. 
So it's a thing that as an engineer you try to design around. But for folks who are trying to design ways to deliver drugs uh, on target, for example, cancer therapies, having that ability to deliver things in very small amounts in very defined quantities is an advantage. Hmm. So we've had several companies that range from large pharmaceutical companies to small startups that are two or three folks deep, look at the space environment and an absence of gravity for ways to take their microfluidic devices and fly them in the space environment so they can do the math and understand the fluid physics of the way fluids are flowing through those devices and the way they're delivering drugs on target. Uh, very recently we flew an experiment, actually a series of experiments from an investigator at Houston Methodist Research Hospital who started off two, a little over two and a half years ago with an idea about a microfluidic device for drug delivery that was going to be used for a variety of different cancer therapies. And at that stage, the first experiment was simply looking at the math to understand the way the device was going to be able to deliver a fluid uh, at a certain level. In the next round of experiments, he was actually able to test the device. And in the most recently completed series of experiments, they actually had the device implanted on mice, mm. and they were delivering a drug on time to the mice. So. Over the course of two and a half years, he was able to take his design from concept and modeling all the way through to a translational test where he was actually looking at it. And that particular device has significant potential value for here on Earth because if you're a diabetic and your sugar levels are fluctuating all, all the time, you need to have the drug delivered at a constant dose over time when it's at, when it's most needed and mm -hmm. not delivered when it isn't needed. And this device has the, the ability to do that. Hmm. We've uh, also seen companies that are looking at glucose monitors for diabetes. They're interested in understanding ways to understand uh, fluid levels of glucose in your blood without having to do a finger prick and, and mm -hmm. take that out. Um, yeah. On the material side, things that have translated back, we have experiments that are going up very soon, haven't flown yet. We have uh, Goodyear on board the International Space Station, and they're looking at the infusion of silica into rubber material. Uh, and that can lead to, to advances in rolling resistance on tires. So, mm, so they last longer. They'll last longer, and they will, you'll use less fuel on the tires as you go through. We have experiments that are going up on the station very soon from Delta Fawcett. We were talking about at the ISSRDC conference this week. Delta Fawcett is um, required by law now to conserve water in, in several states where they employ shower heads. And they're always looking for ways to make the customer feel like they're getting the same level of water, the same pressure of water, when they're actually getting less water delivered over time. And one of the neat things, again, about that absence of of gravity in that environment is they can do modeling of droplet formation in that environment mm. and understand ways to improve a, a shower chip that they now have which promises to deliver the same fill as a normal shower but use significantly less water and water conservation is a major issue for us now uh, we're currently working very hard to uh, provide access to the International Space Station as a remote sensing platform for water sustainability issues. Uh, it's not a, an ISS national lab asset, it's a, a, a sensor array that's been developed by Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but there's a sensor on board the International Space Station now called EcoStress. So EcoStress is taking advantage of the orbital inclination, the, the height at which uh, the International Space Station flies above Earth, to image water use and water conservation around the Earth. And 
It has an advantage over other satellites in that the International Space Station orbits the Earth about every 90 minutes, and it revisits the same spot on Earth about every three days, Mm -hmm. but not at the same point in in the day. So you're able to look at the same uh, specific geographical location on Earth under different lighting conditions. And that can be very beneficial if you're looking at agricultural crops, water usage, coastal erosion, other issues like that. And we very recently worked with Target Corporation to, to uh, uh, work with their folks who are interested in social uh, responsibility issues. Uh, as a major retailer and seller of clothing, Target has identified cotton as a, an area of uh, concern for them where they're looking to make more sustainable crop production of, of cotton. Hmm. It takes over 700 gallons of water to make a single cotton t-shirt. So it's obviously a, a large consumer yeah. uh, of water. And so they're cases sponsored with Target to develop a cotton sustainability challenge that was funded by Target Corporation to use the International Space Station National Laboratory to look at solutions to help with that sustainability of cotton as a plant. And one of the um, projects that was awarded, three, three different groups were awarded for that particular investigation. One of them is looking at the use of data from EcoStress and other sensors that can be delivered to the farmer in the field. So farmers will get real data from space that they could use in combination with data from field sensors that they could use in combination with data from drones to understand when is the optimum time to water or mm-hmm. do they not need to water on this particular day. Hmm. And that those real world solutions are going to be coming down in, in less than a year yeah. from the International Space Station. So we see you know lots of technologies and advances like that where companies and and consortia of groups get together and have real-world problems that they're trying to solve by utilizing the space environment, and some of those are are coming back to Earth as we speak. What about, uh, like, students? Do students get to send things up to the International Space Station? Like, if, uh, you know, some students wanted to watch this or listen to this and then send an experiment up, is that something you guys do, or...? We absolutely do. We partner with uh, Boeing Corporation on Genes in Space, uh, mm-hmm. and many PCR is, is heavily involved in that as well. The Genes in Space program is, uh, there's a competition going on uh, where the winners will be announced tomorrow at the International Space Station Research and Development Conference, where high school teams can propose experiments to utilize a, a small polymerase chain reaction device on board station. So, uh, student scientists can propose experiments where they're going to be amplifying nucleic acids on board the International Space Station and getting real data back down. And it's an opportunity for student teams to not only propose science and essentially expand upon the, the, the science experience that they have in high school, but they're getting real world data. Yeah. We've had winners in the past that have looked at uh, effects of radiation in the crew member's blood. We've had experiments that have looked at, uh, proposed looking at the microbiome on Mm -hmm. board the International Space Station. We talked about test organisms a little bit in that environment. And a lot of times we take, we take organisms up with us that we didn't intend to. Sure. uh, That live on (laughs) us and in us and around us. And uh, polymerase chain reaction is a good way of looking at that. So yeah, we have a genes in space is just one of those programs. We have a variety of, of opportunities for uh, ISS National Lab uh, students to have access to the space environment and many of our partners 
also have uh, student-led programs and opportunities to apply for grants cool. to work on the International Space Station. Uh, I guess one more question for this uh, for this week, and that is, um, you mentioned water a lot in this episode, and it got me thinking about water on the space station. How does water get? Do they, do they bring it up and then continually recycle it? How does? I mean, it's a closed environment, really. So how how does water work? on the ISS? Yeah, that, that's a, a very good question. So um, a gallon of water weighs over eight pounds. So it's, uh, it's something that we have to have, but it's difficult to get into the space environment because it weighs a lot and you, you require it in order to get through your day. So most of the water that was supplied when the station was first uh, began assembly was provided from Earth. It was launched on space vehicles and, and birthed up. They uh, have built a, an environmental control and life support system, which the, in the engineering community they like to call the ECLIS system. And the ECLIS system has everything that's required for air revitalization, for recovering the air, removing the CO2 and resupplying oxygen to providing water. So currently on board the International Space Station, they have a system called the Water Recovery System. They're very imaginative engineers. <laughs> and it actually recovers uh, water from urine mm -hmm. and from humidity condensate. So humidity condensate is a fancy way of saying what we excel and uh, exhale uh, with every breath. So that system is able to operate at about 90% efficiency now. So they are able to recover 90% of the water that comes back into the water recovery system from urine and humidity condensate. So at first blush, some people may think, well, that's kind of gross because I'm drinking, drinking yesterday's urine, yeah. urine today. But it's really no different than the process we have here on Earth with a couple of exceptions. It's done much more quickly on the International Space Station and that the water molecules are recycled a little bit more, uh, more quickly. And we don't use a lot of biology in that system on board the International Space Station. Here on Earth, most of our water recovery like that involves a sewage treatment plant at some point in the step. And that's where our, our friends, the bacteria and, and some fungi in some cases are doing good things for us and recovering that waste. On space, there's concerns about having too many microbes in the system and keeping them where you want them and, and out of places that you don't want them. So the water recovery system relies more upon engineered systems, physical chemical systems to do it. But, so there's still some water resupply that goes up to fill that 10% gap, but most of the water that's used on station now is recovered. That's super cool. Hey everyone, it's Ethan with a few words from our sponsors. We're very excited to have Lego, yes, the Lego, sponsoring our show today. We love building Legos, and they sent us their new Lego Technics series to play around with. It's real-life advanced building, some with working gears and real electric motors. Technic is made for the engineers and STEAM students. From sports cars to hydraulic movers, if you build for power and speed, then visit lego.com technic to find your next Technic build. That's lego.com technic, T-E-C-H-N-I-C. I think I'm spelling right. Lego, Technic, build for real. Um, so we just sent uh, pretty recently an AI machine, like a floating basketball-sized machine to the space station called Simon. Um, can you talk a little bit about, one, I guess, why we did it, and two, what Simon is supposed to learn? Simon, by the way, stands for Crew Interactive Mobile Companion. Yes, I can. Uh, yeah, Simon's very interesting. So there have been applications of artificial intelligence on board the International Space Station and an spacecraft before, but we're starting to learn more and more about the real value of artificial intelligence in helping us with simple tasks like 
logistics, keeping track of stuff where it is, and actually using more of, of enhanced reality type devices so that crew members don't have to train for everything on the ground. They can actually learn as they go. Uh, one of the uh, new advancements in that are, are artificial intelligence devices that actually interact with the crew. So Simon is going to be one of the first tests of this. He's simply, uh, essentially going to be a little bit like Siri, uh, mm-hmm. grown a little bit larger. And one of the advantages, again, of being in that microgravity environment is that you don't have to ha- hold hands or, or keep Simon in your hand. Simon's going to be able to float around and act with things. So there are other devices on board the International Space Station, such as Spheres, um, which are essentially about the size of soccer balls, which have been up there for over 10 years now. And they're small artificial satellites and since they're in microgravity environment they float around they have little co2 canisters that enable them to jet around and move around like little satellites so one of the exciting things we're going to learn about simon is how to incorporate what simon is able to do into mobile devices like that so eventually instead of simon just hanging over a crew person's shoulder and answering questions from them simon may be able to float around independently and do tasks simon or the offspring of Simon will be able to actually independently and automated walk up and ask you, you know, can I help you? Mm-hmm. What do you need to do? Wow. So it's a, a very exciting area of, uh, uh, of adventure. And we're looking at it especially from the research and technology development angle. There's a lot that AI can do for us up there. Yeah. I think it's neat to think of, about astronauts having that same kind of, did I remember to do that thing earlier today? Kind of same problems that we all have here mm-hmm. on the ground. You know, it's just that Simon could be like, hey, Simon, did we do this task earlier? And Simon can say, yes, you know, this astronaut did this task at about this time or That's something right. like yeah. that. Yeah, you know, we, we live in a uh, time today when our refrigerators are keeping track of our <laughs> shopping list. And yeah letting us know what we're low on and you know we need the same capabilities in space for all the tasks that are going on there and in addition to being able to provide insight into what you're doing and how you're doing it they're able to look at correlations of to actually process data in ways that we don't so there's going to be very valuable uh, benefits of developing that AI in the space environment for the research and technology development environment as well. So we put a lot of premium on experiments in the space environment that are automated and don't have to have a lot of crew interaction. And advancements in AI like Simon are going to lead to more and more automation so that the experiments are conducted by devices rather than by actual crew members over time. Hmm. So tell me one more thing about spheres. Are you saying that there's just like little soccer balls jetting around up there? There are at times. We use them for STEM education programs. So there are uh, programs where high school and and middle school students in the past were able to write programs to address challenges. So similar to some of the robotics challenges that are here on Earth, they had to design um, algorithms for the robots to be able to navigate three-dimensional courses and complete tasks. So yeah. you would have two crew members um, watching two different spheres robots move around using code that was provided by high school students or middle, middle school students here on the ground. That's so cool. And spheres has been around for a while. It was a program developed out of MIT, uh, but there's a new program coming on from AstroB that's local. It's going to be coming out of out of Ames Research Center and several partnerships there. And uh, rather than being round uh, soccer balls, they're now cube shaped. Uh, so they're going to look and have even more functionality. Even 
They'll have the quality of a cell phone camera to take really high resolution imagery inside the station and through the cupola. Hmm. Maybe Astro B will want to sit in the cupola too and look back at Earth and take pictures. Yeah, that's so neat. Um, what is it that uh, could make the ISS kind of even better for the future? I mean, if we're thinking about the future of the ISS currently, we've got, what, six or seven years left in its current mission. But if we want to like look to that and then in beyond, what, what could make the ISS better moving forward? Well, first and foremost, it's, it's bringing people's ideas to the station. So the International Space Station um, was conceived a long, long time ago in a galaxy not so far away. Sorry. <laughs> the, the opportunities there in the original concept of building the International Space Station were to build an environment where humans could work and live and to make that uh, an international operating environment so that crews from different nations could could live and work in that environment and conduct research and technology development activities. Over time, it's evolved. So now that it's fully assembled and it is fully functional and operating as a research laboratory, time has moved on. So there are advances in, in high-throughput robotic systems that weren't installed in the original uh, International Space Station. So. Folks who were thinking about designing environments and laboratories to do research, I think would approach the design of the International Space Station from a completely different perspective. So there are opportunities for companies now to bring new modules up that may have some of those innovative new platforms for conducting R&D activities. And part of our mission at CASIS is helping to enable the commercialization of that environment. So. We're looking for anyone out there who has ideas about ways to improve the capabilities of living and operating and conducting research in that space. We're looking for folks who are thinking about ways to utilize the unique features of that environment in order to further their own research goals and directives. So most importantly is to keep engaging people's imaginations and to thinking about space as a, as a working environment where they can take their products, where they can test their ideas, where they can innovate. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us here on Seeker Plus. I appreciate the time. Thanks for watching, and thanks again to our sponsor, WGU, the online university that's affordable, innovative, and changing lives by changing higher education. Get your $65 application fee waived at wgu.edu slash seeker. Special thanks to Dr. Mike from CASIS for coming in and talking to us. Uh, make sure you come back again next week for more episodes of Seeker Plus. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, you name it. We're out there. Just look for Seeker or me, at Trace Dominguez. Thanks again.